Chapter Twenty Seven of David Elginbrod. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. David Elginbrod by George MacDonald. Chapter Twenty Seven, A Sunday. A man may be a heretic in the truth, and if he believe things only because his pastor says so, or the assembly so determines, without knowing other reason, though his belief be true, yet the very truth he holds becomes his heresy. Milton, Areopagitica. At length the expected visitors arrived. Hugh saw nothing of them till they assembled for dinner. Mrs. Elton was a benevolent old lady, not old enough to give in to being old, rather tall and rather stout, in rich widow costume, whose depth had been moderated by time. Her kindly grey eyes looked out from a calm face, which seemed to have taken comfort from loving everybody in a mild and moderate fashion. Lady Emily was a slender girl, rather shy, with fair hair and a pale, innocent face. She wore a violet dress, which put out her blue eyes. She showed to no advantage beside the suppressed glow of life which made Euphra look like a tropical twilight. I am aware there is no such thing, but if there were, it would be just like her. Mrs. Elton seemed to have concentrated the motherhood of her nature, which was her most prominent characteristic, notwithstanding, or perhaps in virtue of, her childlessness, upon Lady Emily. To her Mrs. Elton was solicitously attentive, and she, on her part, received it all sweetly and gratefully, taking no umbrage at being treated as more of an invalid than she was. Lady Emily ate nothing but chicken and custard pudding or rice all the time she was at Arnstead. The richer and more seasoned any dish, the more grateful it was to Euphra. Mr. Arnold was a saddle of mutton man. Hugh preferred roast beef, but ate anything. "'What sort of a clergyman have you now, Mr. Arnold?' asked Mrs. Elton at the dinner-table. "'Oh, a very respectable young gentleman, brother to Sir Richard, who has the gift, you know. A very moderate, excellent clergyman he makes, too.' "'Ah, but you know, Lady Emily and I,' here she looked at Lady Emily, who smiled and blushed faintly, "'are very dependent on our Sundays, and—we all go to church regularly, I assure you, Mrs. Elton.' and, of course, my carriage shall be always at your disposal. I was in no doubt about either of those things, indeed, Mr. Arnold, but what sort of a preacher is he? Ah, well, let me see. What was the subject of his sermon last Sunday, Euphra, my dear? The devil and all his angels, answered Euphra, with a wicked flash in her eyes. Yes, yes, so it was. Oh, I assure you, Mrs. Elton, he is quite a respectable preacher, as well as a clergyman. He is an honour to the cloth. Hugh could not help thinking that the tailor should have his due, and that Mr. Arnold gave it him. He is no to either, added Mr. Arnold, seeing but not understanding Mrs. Elton's baffled expression, though he does preach once a month in his surplice. I am afraid you will not find him very original, though, said Hugh, wishing to help the old lady. Original, interposed Mr. Arnold. Really, I am bound to say I don't know how the remark applies. 
How is a man to be original on a subject that is all laid down in plain print, to use a vulgar expression, and has been commented upon for eighteen hundred years and more? Very true, Mr. Arnold, responded Mrs. Elton. We don't want originality, do we? It is only the gospel we want. Does he preach the gospel? How can he preach anything else? His text is always out of some part of the Bible. I am glad to see you hold by the inspiration of the scriptures, Mr. Arnold, said Mrs. Elton, chaotically bewildered. Good heavens, madame, what do you mean? Could you for a moment suppose me to be an atheist? Surely you have not become a student of German neology. And Mr. Arnold smiled a grim smile. Not I, indeed, protested poor Mrs. Elton, moving uneasily in her seat. I quite agree with you, Mr. Arnold. Then you may take my word for it, that you will hear nothing but what is highly orthodox and perfectly worthy of a gentleman and a clergyman from the pulpit of Mr. Penfold. He dined with us only last week. This last assertion was made in an injured tone, just sufficient to curl the tail of the sentence, after which, what was to be said? Several vain attempts followed before a new subject was started, sufficiently uninteresting to cause, neither from warmth nor stupidity, any damage of dissension, and quite worthy of being here omitted. Dinner over, and the ceremony of tea, in Lady Emily's case milk and water, having been observed, the visitors withdrew. The next day was Sunday. Lady Emily came downstairs in black, which suited her better. She was a pretty, gentle creature, interesting from her illness, and good because she knew no evil except what she heard of from the pulpit. They walked to church, which was no great distance, along a meadow path paved with flags, some of them worn through by the heavy shoes of country generations. The church was one of those which are, in some measure, typical of the church itself, for it was very old and would have been very beautiful had it not been all plastered over and whitened to a smooth uniformity of ugliness. The attempt having been more successful in the case of the type, the open roof had a French heaven added to it, I mean a ceiling, and the pillars, which, even if they were not carved, though it was impossible to come to a conclusion on that point, must yet have been worn into the beauty of age, had been filled up and stained with yellow ochre. Even the remnants of stained glass in some of the windows were half concealed by modern appliances for the partial exclusion of the light. The church had fared as Chaucer in the hands of Dryden. So had the truth that flickered through the sermon, fared in the hands of the clergyman or the sermon right whose manuscript he had bought for eighteen pence. I am told the sermons are to be procured at that price, on his last visit to London. Having, although a Scotchman, had an Episcopalian education, Hugh could not help rejoicing that not merely the Bible, but the church service as well had been fixed beyond the reach of such degenerating influences as those which had operated on the more material embodiments of religion. For otherwise, such would certainly have been the first to operate, and would have found the greatest scope in any alteration. We may hope that nothing but a true growth in such religion as needs and seeks new expression for new depth and breadth of feeling will ever be permitted to lay the hand of change upon it, a hand otherwise of desecration and ruin. The sermon was chiefly occupied with proving that God is no respecter of persons, a mark of indubitable condescension in the clergyman, the rank in society which he could claim for himself duly considered, 
but unfortunately the church was so constructed that its area contained three platforms of position actually of differing level the loftiest in the chancel on the right hand of the pulpit occupied by the gentry the middle opposite the pulpit occupied by the tulip beds of their servants and the third on the left of the pulpit occupied by the common parishioners unfortunately too by the perpetuation of some old custom whose significance was not worn out all on the left of the pulpit were expected as often as they stood up to sing which was three times to turn their backs to the pulpit and so face away from the chancel where the gentry stood but there was not much inconsistency after all the sermon founding its argument chiefly on the antithetical facts that death lowering the rich to the level of the poor was a dead leveller and that on the other hand the life to come would raise the poor to the level of the rich it was a pity that there was no phrase in the language to justify him in carrying out the antithesis and so balancing his sentence like a rope-walker by saying that life was a live leveller the sermon ended with a solemn warning those who neglect the gospel scheme and never think of death and judgment be they rich or poor be they wise or ignorant whether they dwell in the palace or the hut shall be damned glory be to the father and to the son and to the holy ghost etc lady emily was forced to confess that she had not been much interested in the sermon mrs elton thought he spoke plainly but there was not much of the gospel in it mr arnold opined that people should not go to church to hear sermons but to make the responses whoever read prayers it made no difference for the prayers were the churches not the parsons and for the sermon as long as it showed the uneducated how to be saved and taught them to do their duty in the station of life to which god had called them and so long as the parson preached neither puseyism nor radicalism he frowned solemnly and disgustedly as he repeated the word nor radicalism it was of comparatively little moment whether he was a man of intellect or not for he could not go wrong little was said in reply to this except something not very audible or definite by mrs elton about the necessity of faith the conversation which took place at luncheon flagged and the visitors withdrew to their respective rooms to comfort themselves with their daily portions at dinner mr arnold evidently believing he had made an impression by his harangue of the morning resumed the subject he was a little surprised to find that he had even of a negative sort strong opinions on the subject of religion what do you think then mrs elton my dear madam that a clergyman ought to preach i think mr arnold that he ought to preach salvation by faith in the merits of the saviour oh of course of course we shall not differ about that everybody believes that i doubt it very much he ought in order that men may believe to explain the divine plan by which the demands of divine justice are satisfied and the punishment due to sin averted from the guilty and laid upon the innocent that by bearing our sins he might make atonement to the wrath of a justly offended god and so now my dear madam permit me to ask what right we the subjects of a supreme authority have to inquire into his reasons of his doings it seems to me i should be sorry to offend any one but it seems to me quite as presumptuous as the present arrogance of the lower classes in interfering with government and demanding a right to give their opinion forsooth as to the laws by which they shall be governed as if they were capable of understanding the principles by which kings rule and governors decree justice i believe i quote scripture 
are we then to remain in utter ignorance of the divine character what business have we with the divine character or how could we understand it it seems to me we have enough to do with our own do i inquire into the character of my sovereign all we have to do is to listen to what we are told by those who are educated for such studies whom the church approves and who are appointed to take care of the souls committed to their charge to teach them to respect their superiors and to lead honest hard-working lives much more of the same sort flowed from the oracular lips of mr arnold when he ceased he found that the conversation had ceased also as soon as the ladies withdrew he said without looking at hugh as he filled his glass mr sutherland i hate cant and so he canted against it but the next day and during the whole week he seemed to lay himself out to make amends for the sharpness of his remarks on the sunday he was afraid he had made his guests uncomfortable and so sinned against his own character as a host everything that he could devise was brought to bear for their entertainment daily rides in the open carriage in which he always accompanied them to show his estate and the improvements he was making upon it visits sometimes to the more deserving as he called them of the poor upon his property the more deserving being the most submissive and obedient to the wishes of their lord inspections of the schools etc etc in all of which matters he took a stupid benevolent interest for if people would be content to occupy the corner in which he chose to place them he would throw them morsel after morsel as long as ever they chose to pick it up but woe to them if they left this corner a single pace euphra made one of the party always and it was dreary indeed for hugh to be left in the desolate house without her though but for a few hours and when she was at home she never yet permitted him to speak to her alone there might have been some hope for harry in hugh's separation from euphra but the result was that although he spent school hours more regularly with him he was yet more dull and uninterested in the work than he had been before instead of caring that his pupils should understand this or that particular he would be speculating on euphra's behaviour trying to account for this or that individual look or tone or seeking perhaps a special symbolic meaning in some general remark that she had happened to let fall meanwhile poor harry would be stupefying himself with work which he could not understand for lack of some explanation or other that ought to have been given him weeks ago still however he clung to hugh with a far-off worshipping love never suspecting that he could be to blame but thinking at one time that he must be ill at another that he himself was really too stupid and that his big brother could not help get getting tired of him when hugh would be wandering about the place seeking to catch a glimpse of the skirt of euphra's dress as she went about with her guests or devising how he could procure an interview with her alone harry would be following him at a distance like a little terrier that had lost its master and did not know whether this man would be friendly or not never spying on his actions but merely longing to be near him for had not he set him going in the way of life even if he had now left him to walk in it alone if you could have once seen into that warm true pining little heart he would not have neglected it as he did he had no eyes however but for euphra still it may be that even now harry was able to gather though with tears some advantage from hugh's neglect he used to wander about alone and it may be that the hints which his tutor had already given him 
enabled him now to find for himself the interest belonging to many objects never before remarked. Perhaps even now he began to take a few steps alone, the waking independence of which was of more value for the future growth of his nature than a thousand miles accomplished by the aid of the strong arm of his tutor. One certain advantage was that the constitutional trouble of the boy's nature had now assumed a definite form by gathering around a definite object and blending its own shadowy being with the sorrow he experienced from the loss of his tutor's sympathy. Should that sorrow ever be cleared away, much besides might be cleared away along with it. Meantime, nature found some channels worn by his grief through which her comforts, that, like waters, press on all sides, and enter at every cranny and fissure in the house of life, might gently flow into him with their sympathetic soothing. Often he would creep away to the nest which Hugh had built, and then forsaken, and seated there in the solitude of the wide burgeoned oak, he would sometimes feel for a moment as if lifted up above the world and its sorrows, to be visited by an all-healing wind from God that came to him, through the wilderness of leaves around him, gently, like all powerful things. But I am putting the boy's feelings into forms and words for him. He had none of either for them. End chapter 27